So Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26 is our text today at church, part of this series called Getting the Gospel Right. Now, we all know as human beings that at times we're confronted with conflicting desires, dueling desires, if you will. Should I or should I not have that second piece of cake? Should I lash back when I have been insulted or maligned or lied about? I just saw someone that was attractive, that isn't dressed in the most modest way. Should I take a second look? These are the conflicts that even Christian people experience on a regular basis. We are daily confronted, unless we've locked ourselves in a room by ourselves with no access to anyone or anything, with dueling desires, the desire to feed the flesh or walk in the spirit. You know what I'm talking about, because every one of us has it. Maybe different, the subject may be different, the Temptation may be different, but we are all regularly confronted with a simple question. Am I, are you, are we going to gratify the flesh or walk in the spirit? This is a very real conflict, even for veteran Christians. For new Christians, there's often a bit of a surprise attached where you've, you've come to faith in Christ, you've denounced your former ways, and you're fresh into the Christian faith, you know, that first one, two, three years where everything's exciting and new, and you surprise yourself that you're often drawn back towards some of your carnal desires. And then oftentimes as we progress in our faith, you're at the fourth year mark, the fifth year mark, the sixth year mark, and you've kind of been a Christian for a little while and you've had some experience, you may start to become dismayed. You're like, why is it that I can't overcome this way of thinking, why, why is it that I keep looking at things I shouldn't look at or saying things that I shouldn't say or being attracted to things I, I'd really rather not be attracted to? And it's easy to become discouraged and dismayed. And then you have seasoned Christians and they either learn to walk in the spirit or to balance the hypocrisy of it all, to be two-faced, to put on their Sunday best, but then during the week to often just give in to sinful desires. So this is a message in the biblical text that will be of benefit to those of you that fall into any one of those categories. If you're a new Christian, this will bless you. If you've been a few years into the Christian faith, this will bless you. If you're a mature Christian and you have been hiding and pretending, not dealing with your sin, not confronting your sin, this can also be of huge help to you. So as Paul transitions from four to four and a half chapters of discussion about the true gospel of Jesus Christ of the Galatian churches, he now gets very, very practical and he calls us to walk in the spirit, to live in the spirit, to not gratify the desires of the flesh and helps us to understand how that is actually possible. This isn't one of those cheap pastor talk sermons. You've probably heard those where the pastor gets up or the preacher gets up and he spouts off moral platitudes that sound good, 
that, that check the boxes for all the Christian cliches, but don't, aren't necessarily usable. This is not pastor talk. This is reality. This is truth. This is life. This is authenticity. Here's what Paul says to us under the inspiration of the spirit of God. So this is God's authoritative word, beginning with verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit. Walking obviously being a metaphor for the way we live our lives. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. This, this buttresses the doctrine of total depravity, which essentially states that by ourselves, left alone, without the spirit doing the work, by nature, we're all bad boys and bad girls. And there's nothing in us that's particularly or especially attracted to the things of God. We always mess it up. We are by nature bent toward rebellion, just like our, our forebears. The desires of the flesh, the sinful man, the sinful nature are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That is the things you want to do as a Christian. The good things, the righteous things. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So here we have a, a list. It's not comprehensive or exhaustive, but it's, it's pretty important. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, sexual sins. Idolatry and sorcery, worship sins. And then a list of relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then sins of pleasure, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, by the way, this verb is in the present active sense, meaning that if, this is not about what you did prior to Christ or what you did and have since repented of, if you are living an ongoing habitual, present tense sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in contrast to that, we now have the list of what's called the fruits of the spirit. And they include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So there's two things going on there. We live by Him. We live in light of Him. Our identity is in Christ. The Spirit indwells us. So there's a, there's a connectedness, if you will, between the regenerate believer and the Spirit of God. So then there needs to be a practical outpouring of that. Let us also keep in step with the spirit. And that's a day by day thing. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do you struggle with dueling desires, brother or sister? Bit of a challenge for you at times? We all do. Biblically, what we need to learn to do 
is to live by the spirit and renounce the flesh. You see, the flesh wants to be fed, but it needs to be starved. The flesh wants to be fed, but it needs to be starved. And so in verse 16, we're told, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't feed them. You won't give them the attention that they desperately want. If you are feeding the flesh, and we have a whole list of ways that we do that, you're feeding your sexual appetites with sexual sins. That's going to lead you astray. You're worshiping the wrong things. That's going to lead you astray. You're engaging in relational sins, substance abuse. Those things will lead you astray. The flesh will want you to feed it. The old nature, the sin nature will want your attention. It will want, it will beg you to make it feel good, to meet its needs. These temptations are real and they can be relentless this side of heaven. And so God here wants to help us to overcome those things. And we're told essentially not to gratify the flesh, meaning don't give it what it wants. If it's like, I'm hungry, feed me. You're not getting fed. Don't gratify it. How many of you plan to do some camping this summer? Got your RV, your camp trailer, your tents. You're going to spend some time in the wild outdoors. Critical piece of advice. Don't leave your garbage out at night. What happens when you leave your garbage out at night? Those little masked bandits, raccoons, they will inevitably show up. And you'll have a, some interesting sounds taking place outside your tent, but also a big mess to clean up in the morning. The way you keep raccoons away is you don't leave your garbage outside. If you feed them, they will come. And if you feed the flesh, it will put on muscle. It will grow. It will take over your life. So instead of feeding the flesh, we're told to walk by the spirit. Now, many people think that the, the solution then is just behavioral modification. Oh, okay, so at the end of the day, I'm going to leave with a new list, a renewed list of do's and don'ts, and that's just going to help me to overcome. I just got to remind myself, don't take the second look, don't eat the second piece of cake, don't lash back with my words, and if I just psych myself up, modify my behavior, then I'll be able to overcome sins of the flesh. And then you go out, and by 2 o'clock this afternoon, you failed. And you're back next week hoping that some other sermon will fix your problem. This is behavioral modification, the behavioral modification approach. And it's seen in all false religions and in much therapy and counseling these days. Well, the reason why behavioral modification is not enough is because there's something in us that's messed up. Paul references this. He uses the word against. He's, he's comparing the flesh and the life in the spirit. Against, against, opposed, to keep you from doing. Those are the words that he uses in this text to help us to understand there is a very real conflict taking place between the flesh, this, my sin nature, my bent towards sin, 
and the work of the Spirit in our lives. See, we're saved, we're justified, but we're also being sanctified and we've not yet been glorified. So we are saved, present tense, it's complete, but there's an ongoing continuous sense to the full realization of our salvation. And until we are in the presence of the Lord and we are fully glorified, we're going to continue to struggle with sins of the flesh because this body has yet to be fully redeemed. So there's going to be that wrestling match. I'll be like, Lord, I want to serve you. Second piece of cake. Lord, I want to live a generous life. Spend all my money on myself. Holding too tightly to the things of this world, whatever it might be. These are the antitheses of the Christian life. These are sins that are enemies of the spirit ruling you. And in fact, we have this stark warning here in verse 21. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, folks, in order to overcome sin, we first of all have to name it. Identify it. This is why it's necessary as much as in my flesh, I don't really like to. And in your flesh, you don't like to either. We have to name sin. We have to identify sin. We can't just assume that everyone knows what sin is. We have to name it in our preaching. We have to identify it. Rather than a live and let live approach. We have to say, no, this is wrong. Oh, really? I've never heard that in church before. <laughs> so there's several of them that are named here. There's three sexual sins. We're sexual beings, by the way. God created us sexual beings. We don't need to apologize for that or feel embarrassed about it. But that which is good and pure, the flesh can take and use it for corrupt purposes. There's sexual immorality mentioned, impurity, sensuality. Now, we have a limited number of English words to translate from the Greek here. And there, are, there is some overlap in the meanings of these words, just like in many words in English language, there's a, a breadth of semantic range to them. They sometimes overlap. But the first one, sexual immorality, refers primarily to adultery. You're married and you're out having sex with someone else. That's a sin. Always will be. Doesn't matter what culture says. Fornication, that is sex outside of a marital covenant. That's what the second word means. The third word refers to a broad array of sexual impurity. What you're thinking, what you're seeing, what you're saying, and on and on and on. You know what it's like. I don't need to name them all. People have become very, very creative in the breadth of ways they can sin sexually. And Christians aren't anti-sex. We just want to keep it within the boundaries that God has established. Heterosexual monogamous, marital sexuality. That's where we want to keep it. And that might seem restraining, but actually that's protective. It's redemptive and it's protective. God's boundaries are always redemptive and they're always protective. In our flesh, we try to convince ourselves, no, we know better. He's a cosmic killjoy. He, he's trying to rob me of joy. No, you want true joy and tr true pleasure and satisfaction. Follow God's commands in this regard. And then we have two sins associated with idolatry. One is idolatry and the other is sorcery. Idolatry, I have never met, 
a North American Christian yet who has come into my office or met me after church and said, I need to confess the following sin. I have a little idol at home that I worship every day. Nobody has those. So we don't express our idolatry in the same way that ancient people did with their graven images. But there are other material things that we may worship. Isn't that true? How about our careers? We find our identity in them. Like life falls apart when we're not acknowledged at work. Could be our homes, our properties, our automobiles, our physical possessions. And how do you know if you're like stewarding or worshiping? Well, one would be to pay attention to how fast your heart beats when you get new stuff, as opposed to the things of God. Another would be to pay attention to what your emotional response is when you lose them, they're stolen, they break down, they, they wear out. Another would be, you know, the Bible says that where your heart is, your treasure is. So how much money do I spend on accumulating stuff? Like, does my heart start to race when I get on Amazon to order more stuff? When the delivery truck pulls out and I get to go to the mall? Or do I acknowledge that, yeah, there's many good things to own and enjoy, but whether I have them or don't have them, I'm cupped-handed about it. So material things can be, become idols. Sorcery, the word here actually means drugging. It's the word from which we get pharmaceuticals. And I do not believe, as some have said in the last little while, that pharmaceuticals are all connected to sorcery. But some pharmaceuticals can destroy your body. Drugs, addictive substances. Whether you're smoking, drinking too much, whatever it might be, popping pills, taking injections, that's a sin, and that should be crystal clear in your mind. Not, well, a little of this is not so bad. It's a sin. And, and sadly, many Christians don't seem to understand that. It's a sin. Then we have a whole list of relationship wreckers. Enmity, strife, jealousy. Now, if you're a materialist, this is one other way you'll be able to tell if you're addicted to possessions. You become jealous or envious or covetous when someone has something you don't. <laughs> well, folks, you will, you will never have everything you want. And there's always someone that's going to one-up you. So at some point, you just need to say, who cares? I'm not going to be addicted to stuff. Some people will live longer than you. Some people will be better looking than you. Get over it. I've never had to wrestle with that, but some of you, it's a big challenge. Right? I'm usually on the receiving end of the jealousy. Just kidding. Fits of anger. It's one thing to be righteously angry, but fits of anger, seething anger. Rage, we would call it. Rivalries. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, like pitting people against one another, groups against other groups. Envy, these, are, these ruin relationships. Nobody wants to be in a relationship where these characteristics are being displayed. And then hedonistic sins, sins that tend to be pleasure-oriented, drunkenness, 
This is a problem. Sometimes you meet Christians, they don't, drunkenness is wrong. It's a sin. It's the opposite of being sober-minded. The Bible does not, and this is a Romans 14 issue, I believe. It's an issue of conscience. The Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. But the Bible does forbid the abuse of alcohol, period. Now, if you come from a background where alcohol abuse has been an issue, then you you might want to consider abstaining, period. But this is a Romans 14 issue. It's an issue of conscience. And there can be folks in the church that have very strong opinions one way and strong opinions the other way, but where we all need to agree is drunkenness is always a sin. Christians don't get drunk. We don't abuse alcohol, period. We don't do that. We need to name it. Because in the broader culture, it's cool, right? Oh, don't smoke a cigarette, but it's okay to abuse alcohol. Isn't that interesting? This is such a weird world. There's marketing campaigns against tobacco, but for booze. Isn't that kind of weird? This is the culture within which we live. Well, the word of God forbids all substance abuse, including, by the way, food. The sin of gluttony, overeating is a problem, and it needs to be named among God's people. Not overlook because we're scared someone's going to get offended. It needs to be named. It's wrong. It's sinful. And then orgies, sex parties. Probably in the first century context, this would have been associated with paganism because many of the pagan cults would have ritual prostitution and this sort of thing associated with it. Well, this isn't the sum total of all the sins a person could possibly commit, but it's a pretty good list. And it starts with identifying these sins and then having heard God say, no, these are out of bounds for you. We choose to obey him and surrender ourselves to him. Now, when we preach, this is um, really important if you're a preacher or teacher and you're preaching mostly to Christians, your goal should never ever to to preach condemnation. Because we have Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't want anyone here who's a Christian to ever go out when we identify sins and feel they're damned. That somehow the work of Christ isn't sufficient. But there's a word that sometimes is mistaken for condemnation and it's conviction. That's what we want. We all want conviction. We want the spirit not only to say, hey, Aaron, you're doing really well in this area. Like you should find great joy in these victories you've had in your sanctification. But we also want, hey, Aaron, these are some things you need to smarten up in. These are some areas you need to clean up. We want to be convicted. That's a blessing for the spirit of God to convict us. And as we hear these sins listed, if, if there's any of these sins that we've allowed to slip in our lives, we, we want to be convicted. Now, if we're not convicted of these things and we're present active sense living under them, then we won't inherit the kingdom of God, meaning we are condemned. We've not yet 
truly been regenerated by God's overwhelming grace. So works don't save, but a truly saved person will inevitably bear good fruit and live in accordance with God's word. So how do we respond to these sins? Again, there, there are do's and don'ts in the Bible, but how do, we, how do we consistently live in light of God's standards? Well, it, it starts and ends with the Holy Spirit of God. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit brings purification and renewal, internal renewal, attitudinal renewal, mental renewal, relational renewal. The Spirit of God, listened to and obeyed, renews the way we think. Instead of having that stinking thinking, we become biblical in our thinking, Christ-like in our thinking. Our attitudes change. The way we use our hands, our mouths, our eyes changes when the Spirit of God is operative in us. And here's what this looks like. Verse 25, we need to learn to live by the Spirit. Now that language there, live by the Spirit, sounds sort of pie-in-the-sky-ish, like non-concrete, kind of abstract. And we could go away thinking, oh, that was another one of those sermons where, I mean, everything sounded Christian, but I got nothing to use here. So I want, I want to try to make this practical. This is not pie-in-the-sky talk. If you want to live by the Spirit, you need to listen to the spirit in your life, which requires as a prerequisite your study of his word. So you need to expose yourself to truth. I'm listening to the sermon. I'm reading the Bible. Now the spirit has substance, truth, to encourage me, to rebuke me, to admonish me, to correct the way I think, whatever it is that I need in my life. And if you are engaged in God-glorifying worship, worship is not fundamentally about repeating truth, although it needs to be truth-based. But I, I'm a content guy, but I don't believe the value of a song boils down to how much it sounds like Romans chapter 8. A, a Christian worship is not just singing sermons, trying to pack as much truth into a verse or chorus as possible. Fundamentally, worship is praising God. If you want to learn more about worship, spend time in the Psalms because those are the worship songs of the Bible. And they're not chocked full of systematic theology like Romans and Ephesians is, but they're very vertical in nature where we are confessing sin, we're praising God, we're declaring his worth, we're identifying his attributes. We're surrendering. We're lamenting our sin. We're crying out for his help. It's very vertical. It's very real and experiential even. If you are doing that, if you're involved in God-glorifying worship, and then you're reading the Bible, you're listening to preaching, you're understanding more about who God is, who you are, what your identity is, what sin is, what salvation is, who the devil is, what angels are, all the different doctrines of scripture. The Spirit of God, I can guarantee you, will use that to sanctify you. Because when you're about to sin, a warning bell will go off, like one of those emergency alerts in the middle of the night, which maybe isn't the best illustration because they're mildly irritating. But he will alert you. That, Aaron, that, don't, don't say that. Don't, 
Don't think that. Don't look twice. Don't go back there. Pull away from that relationship. The Spirit of God will always warn. He's not, he's not going to wait until you've sinned and then say, I gotcha. Sorry, I was busy with someone else. No. You, you worship the Lord in the beauty of his majesty, and you read his word, and the Spirit of God will speak loud and clear. He lives in you. And the awesome thing is, the more you listen, the louder he speaks. This is the opposite of quenching the Spirit, which is the Spirit's told you 10 times to cut it out, and you don't. And then you wonder why he wasn't there for you the 11th time. Because you didn't listen the first 10 times. So he's backing away. You want to live in sin? Have at it for a while. See how much fun that is. So folks, real progress is possible. And when we live by the Spirit, we will see the fruit of the Spirit flow out. So here they are. We will have more love, love for God and love for others. By the way, Christian love, please understand this, is substantive love. <laughs> There's a little cliche going around in culture. Love is love, which means what? You're not even allowed to define a word by a word. Love is love. That's how substantive, less, meaningless, it's drivel. That's the world. Love is love. No, God is love. And the cross is his primary expression of love. And if you don't know Jesus, you really don't know what love is. Love is selfless. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not easily irritated. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's love. And fortunately, we know what it looks like because we've encountered Jesus' love expressed to us Joy, which is essentially Christian happiness. As kids, preachers used to say, well, there's happiness, which is rooted in carnal things, and then there's joy. No, <laughs> it's the same thing. Joy, biblical joy, is, is Christian happiness. I preached a whole sermon series on this many years ago. It's about finding delight in the things that God finds delight in, including food, including sex, including friendships. It's not just all super spiritual stuff. We're, we're, we are organic created beings. And as we walk with the Lord, we will find joy in all the pleasures that life has to it. But it will, be the, it will be defined joy in the things that God finds joy in. And if God created them, then God finds joy in them. Then we will have peace. Often we remind ourselves of that peace that surpasses human understanding. It's the peace that the world doesn't have. So even when when the world's fallen apart, we can still sleep well at night, right? We may not like what we read in the news or have had said about us, but you want to find your way to a place in your life where when it's 11 o'clock or whatever it is that you fall asleep, you're like, I'm going to sleep well tonight because you know what? God is still on his throne. And in the end, we win because he's won. And I'm going to shut the mind off and not spend all night worrying and mulling over all the problems of the world and find yourself refreshed for another day of service the next day. Patience, being long-suffering, in other words, with, with other folks. Once in a while, people test your patience. You ever found that? None of you have ever tested mine, of course, but others have, and it can... It can be uh, tempting to, to grow 
irritable toward others, but we're called to patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit of God. And for some men, I dare say, some men might find these sort of effeminate. Now, these are things I expect in my wife. But I'm a guy. You know, I'm crass, I'm rash, I'm bold. But these are not gender-specific fruits. All men and women should be demonstrating kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. They're fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And we need to strive for them or after them but fundamentally, we don't really even do that. It's when we surrender ourselves to the spirit that these naturally start to flow out. And they are one of the signs and symptoms of true saving faith. So if you're a little more loving in 2022 than you were in 2021, the spirit's operative in your life. Secondly, we crucify the flesh. This is verse 24. We're going back up one. We must consider ourselves as Romans 6 states, dead to sin, but alive in Christ. I'm always fascinated by that idea of being in Christ because in is a spatial word and Christ is enfleshed in heaven, but he's a spirit being. So how am I in Christ? What does that mean? Well, it refers to our truest identity. Christ's identity has become ours. We've been subsumed into Christ's identity. When he died, he died in our place on our behalf as our substitute. We believe in a biblical doctor, which fortunately some modern preachers deny, called penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ was punished as our substitute to cover our sins. So when, when the father looks at me, for example, or you, if you're a believer, the identity of Christ is your identity. His accomplishments and his merits are benefiting and blessing you. Your truest identity then is subsumed within Christ. And now you're on mission with Christ. What's Christ's mission? That's your mission, to glorify the Father and to seek and save the lost. Christ's mission is your mission. Christ's identity is your identity. You need to remind yourself of this. It's not just a fascinating thought that we've been dead to sin and alive in Christ but it's the opposite of living under the law, seeking to accomplish merits, seeking to live by the law and therefore receive merits so that we might be patted on the back or received into God's presence. The opposite of that is to understand that your identity is in Christ. So it's his merits that have been given to you. You don't get to take credit for them but you're fully blessed by them. It's a wonderful idea. And we won't therefore be able to attain moral standing with God merely by memorizing his rule book or working really hard. We need to allow the spirit of God to operate within us so that increasingly we might look, act, and speak like the Lord Jesus Christ. So every so often, I think in my own life, let's say there's a sin. So you know, you know how life goes. Like there's a whole bunch of sins. You become a Christian. You're like, there's all kinds of sins I'm aware of in my life. And you start to conquer them. And you're like, yeah, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. But then there's those sneaky little sins that tend to persist. And they're different depending on who you are. 
those, those ongoing sins that are more part of your makeup, your, your history, your family of origin or whatever it might be. And you're like, man, why, why can't I shake these? I've shaken off all these sins. Why not these three or four sins? And these can be besetting sins. And if you don't deal with them and allow God to work in your life, they can become hugely discouraging. But one of the surest ways to, to fail to shake them off is to believe that you can't. To have this mindset, well, I guess I'm just defeated in that area. I guess this is just my lot in life to be a, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the sin happens to be. Well, this is a great place to go back to and say, no, no, my, my identity is in Christ. And if Christ conquered all sin, then when I allow his spirit to operate in my life, I can, I can see conquered any and every sin that Christ conquered. Because my victory is not flesh wrought of my flesh, brought about by my flesh, but by Christ living larger and larger in me. So I become less, he becomes more. My mindset about what's right and wrong or how I should live my life is less and less significant and Christ's presence looms larger and larger in my life. Now I will give you one like extremely practical piece of advice. One of the reasons why many people in the modern world in particular, I think this is true, the modern world in particular struggle with sins of the flesh is because we live in a world that is incredibly individualistic and materialistic. It's part of our culture, it's part of our worldview. We're not even aware of it, that it's actually weird compared to most of human history, where we're extremely self-interested and we're taught to be self-interested. Do what you want, pursue what you want, just do it. You can accomplish what you want. Love is love, have sex with whoever you want. You know, pursue whatever career you want. It's, it's a very, very individualistic world. And this is why, you know, historically people would, were more likely to go to war and sacrifice themselves for the good of the whole. Or they understood the idea of corporate solidarity and family groups and responsibility for one another, caring for their, the elderly and living for the, sacrificially for others. We're, we're just incredibly selfish is what we are. And we're told that if we want it, we should go after it. I mean, I find myself getting irritated three minutes into the drive-thru waiting for my coffee, right? It's like, I want it now. You order something on Amazon. Why isn't it here the next day? So we, we live in a culture that feeds the flesh and very few Christians fast. The biblical discipline of fasting solves almost all fleshly desires. Because what the biblical sin of fasting does, and you know, pardon my language, but the biblical discipline of fasting is a way of you take food or water away from your body and what's it gonna do? I'm hungry, shut up. I'm thirsty, I told you to shut up. And a day goes by and the stomach's growling and you're like, oh, I want something to eat, I want something to drink. 
And as you fast, what you actually are reminding your flesh of is you're not in charge, buddy. You're not in charge. And if you learn to control this, you will be much more positioned to control all of this. But when you never fast, you, you've never even denied yourself a donut. When the scantily clad woman walks by, guys, what training do you have to look away when you're used to feeding your flesh? So the biblical discipline of fasting is a wonderful thing. There's many different reasons for fasting in Scripture. I think there's about seven, at least. There's fasting for repentance or national renewal. But one of the benefits of the discipline of fasting, and I don't want to be a dualist and sort of separate too much the spiritual man from the flesh, but because we are integrated beings, but it does say to our physical bodies, you are not in charge and I'm not going to let you control me anymore. And when you've been silent for a little while, then I'll start to feed you again. Well, that's just a practical tip. People come into your office, they're like, I have an addiction. One of the first questions is, do you ever fast? No. Well, you go fast and then come back, and we'll have another conversation. And then we're told to keep in step with the Spirit in verse 25. So walk alongside of Eastern mystics like to talk about enlightenment. Go on a journey, climb a high mountain, freeze to death, and you'll be enlightened. Well, we, we believe in enlightenment too, but it's enlightenment that comes from the light of the Spirit shining his presence upon the Word of God, helping us to see like with a highlighter across the page what the Word of God means and what God's path is for our lives now, in order to do that, we need to sort of tune in, if you will, to the spirit. Remember in the old days when radios had like the, the turn dials and there's a the little needle. So I'm, I'm, I'm rolling the dial forward. It's like getting close. And all of a sudden the music comes in or the talk show. And if you go a little past, it kind of gets fuzzy again. You got to kind of bring it back. Well, listening to the spirit is kind of like that. Like it's a process you, you have to learn to sort of tune in be aware, because if you're not paying attention to the Spirit as a general rule in your life, and he's whispering, yeah, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't say that, but you're not used to listening to him, it might be kind of fuzzy, you're used to listening to the flesh, you're not tuned into the Spirit of God, and you're liable to fail. So this is an ongoing process. So true story, when I was a child, in, especially in elementary school, almost every single report card from kindergarten to grade eight had the same two comments on it. I'm sure there was some positives. I don't remember what they were. But almost everyone had this. Aaron does not listen. And Aaron teases other people too much. Okay, the second of which I've never overcome. But the listening part, I was like, I, I think I listen. But then I, I, yeah, I guess I'm really not listening. i I'm thinking about the tree fort I'm gonna build this afternoon when I get home from school or the bicycle I'm gonna fix because I like to do stuff like that. And I, I just sort of, elementary school is like a blur to me. I don't even know how I passed, just sort of showed up and somehow got through and learned to speak and read and write. But I was always in another world. 
But when I got into high school, especially about midway through, I'm like, I, I identify this as an issue. I need to learn to listen to what's actually being said. So I, I dialed in and I started listening to, to the words, every word. When I got into college, I would literally listen to every single word and process it, its meaning, train myself to focus. So I became a good student throughout my undergraduate and graduate studies. But you gotta train yourself. And it, it took a while to wean myself off of thinking about everything else. When you come to church, you're only here for a little while. Dial in to the sermon, dial into the worship. Pay attention to every word, every lyric, every conversation. Train yourself to be focused. And in your spiritual life, as you're reading God's word, focus on what you're reading and ask God, God, as I'm reading your text right now, speak truth to me. I don't want to just have a big head, a lot of Bible knowledge. I want to live it out. I need this. I'm a weak man. And the spirit of God will honor that and he will guide you. If you need encouragement, he's more than capable. If you need a little rebuke, he'll give you that too. And he'll help to help you to spot lies. By the way, this is wonderful because we're being told lies all the time. He, you'll be able to spot the lie. Listen to the news. I hear the lie there. I'm reading the article. That's a lie. Here's, a, here's an ideology I'm being presented with. I, I know what the lie is there. You'll be able to spot the lies and make sure that they're not trying to lead you away from God. So this is, this is of course, excludes or precludes conceit. This is not from us. This is something that the spirit of God does as we allow him to work in our lives. So brothers and sisters, I, I'm glad to be a Christian because... Everybody in the world struggles with sin, but they have no means or mechanism or way out. We do. We've been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have his spirit in us. And when we stay focused on the Lord, worshiping the spirit, walking with the spirit, allowing the spirit to work in our lives, to bear fruit, his name will be honored and glorified. And now there's room for diversity in this church. Don't leave the church over this, but I do not believe that some people only have partial access to the spirit of God. I think when you are converted, the fullness of God's Holy Spirit is available to you. I do not believe there's a second baptism in the spirit. Those that would agree with that, that's fine. You can still worship here. You can still serve here. You can still be a leader here. I just don't think the Bible teaches that. Like what about an ax? where they ran around and laid hands on people and they received the spirit after their conversion. Well, that's because these people were converted before Pentecost. And before Pentecost, the spirit of God did not indwell God's people. He came upon them or on them. It wasn't until Pentecost that we have in or into language that appears in scripture. But after that, everyone receives the spirit of God at their conversion. So you're not like a half spirit filled Christian or a three quarter three quarters filled Christian. The, the spirit of God is fully available to each one of you. The question is, the filling of the spirit is positional. You get all of it at your conversion. But in terms of the practical outworkings of that, yes, it's true that on a given day, you might only be half filled. 
because you're only half submissive or three quarters submissive. But when you allow the spirit of God to fully operate in your life, he can do everything that he can do for any other Christian. You actually can live out the fruits of the spirit of God in your life, be fully equipped for the work of the ministry, have full access to the gifts of God's spirit and to be used mightily for him. So don't be a pessimist and don't have a defeatist mindset. Well, I I don't have enough of the spirit yet. No, you have full access to the spirit of God if you're one of his children and he wants to operate in your life and do an amazing work to his glory and to your own benefit, to the benefit of those around you as well. So let's ask God to work in our lives in a way that we can't, but let's also take time to express to him our desire, our intention to have him work in our lives to accomplish his good purposes.